Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., we have... Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hello, David. And maybe at some point we'll have Corey Shockey. We'll see uh, how these things go. But coming to us from Cambridge, Massachusetts, or the general Boston area, we've got our friend Stephen Walt from uh, Harvard's Kennedy School. Hi, Steve. Hi, David. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. And of course, Juliet Kayyem, who is both a senior lecturer at the Kennedy School and runs and founded uh, an outfit called Kayyem Solutions. Hi, Juliet. Hi. So um, there's a lot to talk about, obviously. I'm sure most of you have spent your mornings trying to find an empty oil uh, tanker <laughs> ship to fill with free oil. Um, but uh, uh, I, I just want to warn you, apparently the arbitrage is not right. If you, if it, the, the difference between May futures and, and November futures is not great enough to warrant the price of spending $10,000 a day for an oil tanker. So if you're, if you're in the middle of that, I would say stop the transaction. Rosa looks to me as though this is what she spent her morning doing. I'm waiting for oil companies to start paying me 30 or $40 a barrel to store it for them. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I promised that at some point, um, Corey Shockey would join us. And we're uh, off to the races, Corey. Oh, we're, there's we're, Corey. We're in mid-podcast. <laughs> so, hi, Corey. And, and I've introduced everybody. And there's Corey Shockey, who has joined us now from Washington, D.C. But what I was going to say is all of you guys have been very busy. You have all been writing very interesting things. And I'd like to get to those things. I know Juliet's got a hard stop at 3 o'clock. So I'm going to start with Juliet, and then I'm going to work my way around. Great. Um, And uh, although the articles didn't exactly fit together, I will weave them together. So by the end, I'll say, see how they all fit together. (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, Juliet's article, I thought, um, was quite interesting in that it, I mean, as they always are, but but you were talking about adjusting to where we go from yeah. here. And uh, I hear a lot of people talking about that. Yeah. A lot of people saying, yeah. well, there aren't gonna be a restaurant, people aren't gonna do this. Schools are gonna be different from the way yeah. that schools are. Um, many universities are gonna do a lot more remotely forever, not just yeah. for the fall, but forever. So what you went out and you talked to some of your yeah, friends. So, what, what did yeah, you no, so I mean, basically, okay, you know, all this talk about opening up and, you know, there should be appropriate triggers. There should be all sorts of other activity before we get there. But what I tried to do is just sort of envision what our lives are like for the next two or three years, assuming, assuming this is the, the hard part, one of the hard parts, which is the isolated social distancing, we begin to open up. And then on the far end, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, you know, um, a vaccine with manufacturing and, and distribution. So I, I, so in crisis management, you know, a response is, is followed by a recovery. Those of you who experienced Hurricane Sandy, you know, the response is lasting five or six days, then you head into recovery. The, the bodies are found, the debris is picked up and you get back to normal. This is gonna be a recovery like no other because, and so I've called it, uh, you know, adaptive recovery. It is, it is, um, it is, we will learn to manage, work around, um, box in, uh, try to hide from, 
uh, a threat that is still with us, that it will still kill. So, um, and so it's a very different kind of thinking about recovery. And so I just went through it. I said, how are people's lives going to be in impacted? We, get, we, we talk about the jobs and the economics, and we talk about schools and the public sector, but just how will you and I live? And just, it was just an interesting inventory of everything from golf will be the, the only, the only competitive sport we watch to, um, to movie theaters are not likely to survive to even, you know, religious, uh, gatherings and how we'll change about, uh, things like funerals, which we already are. And that will, and so that, and that will, um, be us, uh, you know, call it a purgatory, call it what you will for some period of time. If golf it, is the only that's purgatory. sport that survives, that's at least... It's not survives, but it's just literally, they're the only association that's opening back up in June, which seems appropriate just given how you can do, without, without um, uh, uh, viewers, I mean, without uh, uh, spectators uh, at, the, at the tournaments. Did so I take a position on mini golf, Juliet? Yeah, mini golf too close. <laughs> oh, pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, so uh, basically, uh, you know, I described it um, as, or quoted a friend of mine who's a minister as sort of, we let's stop talking about the new normal or the next normal. Just talk about the now normal. That every day is going to be different, and um, and we have to get our heads around it because um, we will be, uh, as I say, adapting every day for the next couple of years. Well, that's certainly true. By the way, the article is called After Social Distancing, yeah. A Strange Purgatory Awaits, and it's at The Atlantic. Um, it was posted there a couple of days ago. Um, uh, Steve, you know, one of the things that's going to be a component of this new normal is going to be how we view the role of government mm -hmm. during the next phase of this and afterwards. Um, because there have been lots of theories and lots of political positions about, you know, whether government should be, you know, the only good government is a small government or whether it has a, one has a more expansive view, what the role of the president is, what the role of the states are. All this seems to be opening up again. Um, and, you know, you had a piece in, at Foreign Policy um, which addressed one component of that, which was the United States is getting infected with dictatorship. Uh, and so perhaps you can pick up on that and sort of talk about what is the new normal or what, what might we have to worry about as the now normal in government? Well, first of all, you know, the best line I've seen in this whole affair on this particular issue is that, you know, nobody is a libertarian in a pandemic. Yeah. Um, and you know, suddenly we're expecting public institutions to solve a set of problems for us, whether that's fixing the economy or at least keeping it on life support long enough to get us through this. Uh, government has to organize responses, has to tell us all where we can go, what we can do, what activities are permissible. And for the most part, with the uh, exception of the so-called branch COVIDians, that is to say the people who are protesting these things actively, most Americans are going along with this, uh, whether they're not, they're not necessarily doing it as carefully, as religiously as we might like to see, but most people are accepting a government authority. And we're seeing then around the world, the same thing is happening in lots of other places. Uh, the interesting question uh, will be how many of those governments then start relaxing or giving up those emergency powers once the crisis is behind us or once the crisis is at a, a manageable state? Uh, you know, I think that's a really open question and it's going to vary from country to country to country. Uh, second issue is I like to think, although I can't guarantee it, but I like to think that one lesson on all of this is going to be that, you know, having competent people in place is a good thing, not a bad thing. That expertise in certain areas is, uh, turns out to be pretty valuable. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, say the, the Fed has done a pretty good job in responding to the immediate economic crisis. And that's in part because the Federal Reserve has a lot of very competent economists working for it. Uh, it would be nice if we had the same number of competent people in some other parts of the government, you know, beginning at the White House, but then extending beyond from that into, uh, you know, uh, health and human services, into a bunch of other areas as well, into the Department of Homeland Security, where Juliet uh, used to work. Um, there's the final question, of course, is whether or not we're going to come out of this with uh, our constitutional order mm -hmm. still intact. 
And that's what I was writing about in particular, my concern that we happen to have a president right now who has the greatest incentive to hang on to the presidency of any of his predecessors, because the consequences for Donald Trump of not being president are really quite remarkable in terms of Eve. what happened to him afterwards. Don't tell him that. <laughs> I, think he, I, think I think he knows, yeah. He doesn't need to be told. Um, and that therefore his incentive to monkey with our constitutional order in order to try and keep himself in power no matter what uh, is worrisome. Um, I can I can elaborate more if you'd like, but you know that's the basic. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that because I, I would like yeah. to go around with everybody each time. But uh, a couple of days before you had your piece uh, in foreign policy, um, Corey had a piece uh, in the Atlantic on April seventh called "The Imperial Presidency Comes to a Sudden mm -hmm. Halt." Um, and I know Corey shares some of your concerns about uh, you know overuse of certain executive powers, but I think. Corey was making a different point, and maybe you might want to offer that, Corey, in counterpoint to what Steve said. Yeah. As you rightly pointed out, I don't disagree with Steve uh, on this. I'm actually, I find the president's um, suppleness in finding ways to violate the norms of executive reticence and to make executive power grabs on stuff like uh, diverting money to the border wall um, mm -hmm. and travel bans quite alarming and so it's actually been a surprise to me that the president and the and the first real crisis of Donald Trump's presidency he actually hasn't moved aggressively to expand executive authority I'm glad of that um, but in a weird way, it seems to me like this is the time in which um, uh, assertive use of federal authorities to save the lives of Americans might be justified to a much greater extent than his behavior has been justified in other ways. So it's kind of a mystery to me why of all times, now's the time that they don't use it. Do you have a theory on it, Steve? Yeah, I, I, I do. do. I think this is this is a classic uh, Trumpism, right? That he actually doesn't want responsibility yeah. for any of this, right? He doesn't want to do anything decisive or active because then if it doesn't go well, he's to blame. So what we've seen is sort of the classic uh, Trump playbook. He's trying to devolve all the responsibility for taking action to the governors, to local authorities, things like that, and spending his time then revving up his base with tweets to liberate Virginia mm -hmm. or liberate Michigan. You know, divide the American people, put the blame on somebody else, and pretend to be president every day for an hour or two in front of a compliant media. Yeah, that's so I, I was going to I was going to get to Rosa, but I know yeah. Juliet, you've got a comment on this. So why don't okay, you? Just, I'm sorry, Rosa. No, I, I mean I just wanted to add on to what Steve was saying was was he's not asserting authority where one would expect him to, or where it might be helpful if you were functioning White House, like you know national guidelines on stay at home or or um, uh, 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 sheltering in place. But his assertion of authority. Um, at least, uh, uh, or pretending vis-a-vis um, -vis the governors has been, um, I think, consistent with what Steve is saying is that he wants to have the aura of power. So he says he alone can decide when the U.S. is opening up, but either won't exert it because he doesn't want responsibility or can exert it, but he just wants to be able to cater to his base that, yeah, he told those governors what to do. It's just, it's the same thing where no responsibility all assertion of power where he doesn't realize leadership is actually something earned and i think he's made himself slightly irrelevant in some of the in some of these in these aspects not ideal but he has hi now i'd like to share with you a word about one of our favorite sponsors and one of my favorite media organizations the new yorker the new yorker publishes the best writing by the most influential authors in the world, with award-winning reporting, political commentary and cultural criticism, fiction and poetry, cartoons, and more. 
In addition to the weekly print magazine, NewYorker.com has become a daily digital destination for news and cultural coverage with a complimentary iOS app that provides the best of both worlds. The New Yorker has won the trust of generations of readers, uh, and I can vouch for that. You know, this when I was a little kid in the home, this was what my parents went to. I went to the cartoons first. Ultimately, when I finally got to be an age where I could read the articles, I felt I had really had a kind of intellectual bar mitzvah. I'd come of age. I was going to be able to be able to handle my own in conversations around the house. The authors at the New Yorker are some of the best there are. Um, uh, you know, all you have to do is go to theNewYorker.com right now. There's an article there that I think is one of the most important articles I have seen uh, published uh, in the United States about the way politics really works in the U.S. called How Mitch McConnell Became Trump's Enabler-in-Chief by Jane Meyer. Jane Meyer is one of the best journalists in the world. She has done the most to shed a light on dark money, which was the subject of her last book, and how American politics really works. My former colleague Susan Glasser has an article called Trump's Pandemic Plan, Absolute Authority, No Responsibility, also excellent, exactly on target, uh, the kind of thing you need to read if you want to understand what's not just what's going on, but what's going on in the minds of leaders because they're reading this. I should add that on the list of the most popular articles on the site, number one is Mastering the Art of Making a French Omelette, which tells you what people have on their mind as they're locked down, but it also gives you a sense of the range of what is carried in this uh, special, special media outlet. Uh, the offer that we've got for you is 12 weeks for just $6. It's regularly $12, plus you get a limited edition tote bag. You get home delivery of the print edition each week. You get unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day. You get access to the apps, online archives dating back to 1925, crossword puzzles, and more. So get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 plus the limited edition tote at newyorker.com slash deep state, all one word. You will save 50% when you enter the code deep state at checkout. That's all one word, deep state. Go subscribe to The New Yorker. You won't regret it. Now, of course, the crisis is continuing on and we haven't seen certain dimensions of the crisis. For right. example, we have not seen uh, the consequences socially or in our streets of 20% or 30% unemployment. Uh, we haven't seen what that might do over a long summer. We haven't seen um, what a, a resurgence of the, uh, the disease might uh, result in. And we haven't seen any of these things in the weeks leading up to an election and a president who might want to take advantage of that. And I've noticed, Rosa, um, that in the past couple of days, you have been invoked, um, uh, uh, as, as should be the case, but you, you've been invoked, uh, for example, today in the Monkey Cage blog at the Washington Post, uh, where they are talking about the problem with calling it a war mm -hmm. against coronavirus. Um, and they, uh, in uh, uh, another one of the citations I saw, they were referring to your book, which deals with this um, mentality. The president calls himself a wartime president, and you could easily imagine circumstances in which the president of the uh, United States, with more social unrest or closer to the election, could in fact say, well, I'm a wartime president, and therefore I get to do these things that Steve is worried about, uh, or that Corey's worried about, but, you know, is saying we haven't seen just yet. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, well, here's one thing that maybe will make you feel mm -hmm. better, and one thing that'll make you feel worse. <laughs> um, um, nobody actually thinks this is a war. Um, I think in this situation, everybody does get that that is a metaphor and nobody is claiming it. It is, it is the equivalent of an actual war. Uh, and I think even, that's the case even with Trump. Um, frankly, Trump was already a wartime president. Uh, we have wars going on uh, right this minute. Um, um, so I don't, so, so in that sense, I'm not that concerned about the rhetoric. Here's what should make you feel worse, um, though. 
is that he basically has a lot of emergency power authority in a public health crisis as well. You don't actually need to call something a war in order to trigger the release of many of the kinds of authorities that, that Steve is concerned about. Um, so I, I, I actually, I was, I was a little bit scratching my head to see myself invoked on this because mm -hmm. um, um, while I absolutely agree that there are, there are real dangers in continuing to expand what we think of as war, I, I do actually think that there is a difference between war as metaphor and war as we are treating this as a war for legal purposes and functional purposes and institutional purposes. I'm not seeing yet, if, 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 if anything, and this goes back to Corey's point in her Atlantic piece, if anything, um, Trump is not treating this warishly enough on some level yeah. in the sense that he's not using he's he's not using the vast resources of the military in a particularly intelligent way or indeed at all for the most part with a few sort of random exceptions of let's send a hospital ship here and there and oh but it turns out they don't actually have any patients well whatever um you know by and i i, mean, I what, what i would ex what i would what I would expect and to some extent fear with a, 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 if Trump were behaving a little differently here um, would be that he says, this is a war, therefore I'm putting general so-and-so in charge of all nationwide pandemic response. Uh, therefore I'm drafting people for the pandemic response. You know, therefore I am, I am imposing immediately a nationwide curfew, which I otherwise have absolutely no power to do, but in wartime I can get away with all kinds of crazy shit, you know, and not only that, I'm taking all the Chinese Americans and I'm sticking them in an internment camp somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it doesn't strike me as impossible that those things could happen in the future under this president or indeed some other leader, but we're, we're not seeing, we're seeing neither the bad aspects nor the potentially good aspects yeah. um, of a, response that relies more heavily on making use of the military. And, you know, as I said, we're also missing a lot of opportunities. You know, there are all kinds of ways in which military resources, military information networks, uh, military logistical support networks could actually be doing a whole hell of a lot more to advance public health than they are. And Trump has shown no particular interest in that or awareness of, of those resources. Yeah, that's what everybody comes to Deep State Radio for, to listen to former members of the Obama administration say that the president is not being dictatorial enough. That's not that, what I said. <laughs> that we need that we need Donald Trump to to st step up and 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 use his power more. Um, but Julia, Julia, one of one of the, the the things that strikes me about all of this, and it's easy for people to to fall into this trap. But you know, Germany is winding down its lockdown. Yeah. New Zealand is winding down its lockdown. Um, uh, France, uh, Macron has talked about winding down his lockdown. Mm -hmm. uh, Governor Cuomo has said, we have passed the peak here in New York mm -hmm. State um, uh, after 10,000 deaths, and, and, which is the sort of epicenter of the, the epidemic on the planet Earth. And so I think a lot of people are kind of Oh, it's uh, springtime. I mean, I yeah. was out by the Hudson River yesterday afternoon. And it, you, if it weren't for the fact that a lot of people were wearing masks, you would not know that it was, yeah. it, it was packed with people. Um, and so people want to say, this is over and this is what we've learned. Right. But it's not over. And no. we don't know what we've learned yet, do we? <laughs> no, and it's not over. I mean, this is... And we so never learn anything. Right. Well, well there's that. So, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think actually, it, you know, what are the lessons learned out of this? It's going to be that the original plans were actually pretty good. I mean, in other words, if they had not abandoned uh, every, you know, everything from the Defense Production Act to, you know, giving FEMA logistics, why Jared Kushner has logistics, you can't run logistics out of a White House. It's ridiculous. Um, so, but I think on your point, Look, there's going to be, a t as I said, this is going to be adaptive recovery. There's going to be deaths. Like this is like, get your, you know, there's going to be deaths to the virus for the, for a while. The question is, we just, we don't want them to so overwhelm our, our, our health capacity, our health response capacity. Uh, that means that there will be increased health, uh, uh, health response capacity because we will continue to see deaths. And so whatever your trigger moment is and whatever the criteria are, whether it's the, South Korea model, which has had 
uh, challenges because Singapore has had challenges, Europe will have challenges. The most important thing, I think the thing that we're suffering from now is, is you know, what, what we in crisis management call the, you know, the preparedness paradox that, that um, people like me have been screaming since January, shut everything down, right? I mean, and, we, and people thought we were crazy, you know, but, you, you know, you knew that, that, that China wouldn't be able to contain it. And you, and this was, you know, pandemic planning was shut everything down, right? And so, um, and then you show success because most Americans are supporting it. Most Americans are uh, socially distancing, and um, and um, and then the numbers are not a million. I'm not applauding forty thousand. I think it's going to be closer to two hundred plus. But uh, the numbers are lower than we anticipated. And everyone says, "What the hell was all of your people's problems? Uh, let's go out and party," which is you know, which is also instigated by Fox and Trump and stuff. But it's the the preparedness paradox is a part of you know, the challenges of crisis management is the more successful you are, you're either accused of, you know, overreacting or no one takes your efforts seriously. We are still, need, we will be social distancing for years, some form of social distancing for years, if not because it's required by law or government, but because our own personal risk assessment is going to say, you know what, I, I want to live a long time. I have three kids. I'm responsible for them. I, I'm not going to go to a concert, right? I'm just not going to do it. And that's what we're not factoring into this as well. Those personal preferences of risk assessment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely true. I see the little clock on the wall says. I know you guys, this is great. That Juliet's got to go. But Juliet, please come back soon. I will. I will. Thank you guys so much. Be safe and healthy. That's the most important thing. Yes. You, you, you Bye. Too. It's not surprising if you have two or three high interest credit cards in your wallet right now. Why not pay them off with credit card consolidation loan from our friends or sponsors at Lightstream? You know, we uh, get submitted uh, testimonials that come from people who have used Lightstream. One of them said, I heard about Lightstream while listening to one of my favorite podcasts, and it prompted me to do some more research. After shopping around for a personal loan that would help me get a lower interest rate, there was no one easier to work with. Plus, Lightstream had the best rate by far. Better yet, no fees, and I had my cash within two business days. Overall, amazing experience, highly recommended. You can understand why this is front of mind for people in the current moment. Uh, Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's what they attempt to deliver quickly, roll balances from multiple credit cards into one single monthly payment. Lightstream's credit card consolidation loans have rates from just 5.95% APR with auto pay, and there are absolutely no fees. So apply today to get a special interest rate discount and save even more. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash deep state, all one word. That's lightstream, L-I- G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash deep state, all one word. This is subject to credit approval. Rate includes a 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash deep state for more information. Uh, yeah. I do note that Steve quotes Juliet in his article. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you quote her in the part of the article in which you're talking about this effort to fire inspectors general, um, which is an example of presidential overreach that has taken place during this crisis. But another thing that you talk about in the article that I find interesting and relevant in this broader context is disinformation. Because whether or not the president has asserted legal authority or imposed martial law or changed election dates or any of the kind of things that might concern somebody, over 40% of the United States, for 40% of the United States, he has the ability to determine what's a fact and what's not a fact. He, he, he you know, this dis, disinformation is not just lying and spinning, but, it, but when he says something, it immediately becomes a political issue for the country. And if he says you should leave, then all of a sudden you have these demonstrations that people have in the street 
or if he says try hydrochloroquine, chloroquine, then people or hydroxychloroquine, people try that kind of thing. Um, and so he he may, he may not be acting as a dictator for all of us, but inadvertently, the ones who are most um, sort of dictated to by the president are his own supporters. Yeah, there's no no question about that. <clears throat> and to some degree, right, that's a symptom of just how polarized the country is. I mean, there's a good news, bad news part of this story uh, as well. The the good news, at least from my perspective, is that he has not gotten the rally around the flag effect that most previous presidents have had in big crises. Uh, sort of regardless of what uh, happens, you know, George W. Bush was extraordinarily popular in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 because he was seen to be taking action, et cetera. Trump has gotten almost no bump, a little bit, but not much uh, compared with his predecessors. Uh, but the bad news is he has not also lost support among his base in the way you would have expected. I mean, objectively speaking, you would think that having done what he did do and uh, said all the things he has said, and then you consider all the things he failed to do in the time window that we had, you would have expected his approval rating now, especially given where the economy went as a result, to be somewhere around 10%, 12%. And instead, there's still you know, 30, 40% of the American people think he's doing a good job with this one. And I think that reflects the fact that we live in a very polarized media environment where the people who watch you know, Fox News and the One America Network and, and imbibe everything the president says are not going to be affected by sort of the objective reality there as much as they will be affected by whatever he is, uh, is telling them. And I think that's a, a huge problem. And just to flat, fast forward, I mean, that's one of the things I worry about. I worry about an election in November that doesn't yield a crystal clear result. Uh, you know, an overwhelming victory for one side or the other that even the losing side has to acknowledge is really, okay, that's what happened, that's who our next president is. At which point, let's suppose that Trump loses, but not by much, in a couple of battleground states, immediately declares that the election was stolen, immediately declares that he's not gonna leave the White House, uh, lights up his Twitter feed, goes on Fox and says, you don't have to accept this right, um, that you need to liberate those battleground states where I, my uh, election was stolen. Um, and then we're back in a sort of the year 2000 only cubed, right, where suddenly you might have people actually out in the streets, not counting torn chads, but actually uh, trying to use uh, violence in one form or another to intimidate people. At that point, I think we are in a completely uncharted uh, set of waters for the American historical experience. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but the fact that I can't completely rule it out is a place I never expected to be, uh, you know, as an adult American. You know, I, I'd like to get a little prescriptive here. Um, I, I, I do hear that there is a kind of a, a sense that the executive powers are not being used as they sh should be. Uh, and the executive resources, whether it's the military um, um, or other resources, uh, such as the, uh, the uh, Defense Production Act or other kinds of things like that, are not being used as they as they could be, um, I, I might add that you know there are other things that are not being used as they could be. Um, our role uh, within alliances, uh, our uh, you know we, we didn't have to turn the World Health Organization into an enemy, no matter how much they may have screwed up some portion of this. Uh, we, we we you know you you might say part of the new normal is going to be desire to undo globalization. But the alternative to that is you can't undo globalization and you have to figure out a way to deal with it. So as you look at this prescriptively, Corey, um, in terms of the sort of policy choices that a president has, whether it's this one or the next one, what, do, what, what could we do, he do better? Um, I certainly agree with uh, the description you just gave, David. And one of the things the president could do better is not just stop demonizing the World Health Organization, but acknowledge that for 
um, many international institutions like the like International Aviation Association and the World Health Organization, China has um, taken a leading role precisely because we left a power vacuum with our withdrawal from, uh, from engagement in those organizations and from leadership roles. So cutting off funding to the World Health Organization is a perfect example of the self-defeating nature of America First. The complaint is the Chinese are driving the World Health Organization into being a mouthpiece for the Chinese Communist Party. So let's do even more damage to it instead of playing a positive game that provides better information, that provides leadership that's accountable. Um, we are leaving the playing field in international organizations at precisely the time that our interests argue for much greater engagement. And I think I would generalize that argument into saying that we, what the pandemic shows is that we have too little globalization, not too much, right? So the monopoly reliance on production in China is halfway globalization. Better globalization is having more than one place where you can uh, do manufacturing or get uh, materials you need for what you're doing. Uh, so more globalization would create better diversity of supply chains instead of where I think the president is headed, which is renationalization of them. There is a way to completely bring an end to globalization, uh, right, to cut ourselves off from the rest of the world, but that will un make us poorer, dumber, and less able to compete with everybody else. Well, I, that's an optimistic view, Corey, typically from you, because you raise the possibility that we are not as dumb as it gets right now, that we could still get dumber. Oh, let's just look at beach openings in Florida, David. Oh yeah, no, that's a you make a you make a very compelling point. Um, well, let's let's uh, continue this sort of more prescriptive look at this with Rosa and then with Steve. Um, you talked before about you know using the military um, more. Um, perhaps you have a comment on that. Perhaps you have a comment on what Corey just said, or yeah. something else we could do. And you are, you're, you're the, the, the headline of this is going to be Rosa Brooks pleads for more authoritarian Trump. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, no, I, mean, I actually wanted to, to talk about two issues. Mostly, I agree with everything Corey just said, but, but mostly from the earlier part of the conversation. Um, on the military issue, um, I think the, one of the things that, that I've emphasized when I've written about this is actually the need to be a little bit less essentialistic and obsessive about which institution does what and focus more on the important norms that underlie the discussions we often have about which institution we think should do what, which is to say um, the important thing is not whether people wearing uniforms or people not wearing uniforms do X or Y. The important thing is that whatever is done in our still somewhat of a democracy should be done transparently, effectively, and in a manner that is consistent with democratic norms about, about process and accountability. And I don't really care that much who does what, provided we can do whatever it is consistent with those norms. And I think that's where we need to be focusing and less on a kind of formalistic, well, are we calling it this? Are we calling it that? Is, the, is it somebody in uniform? Is it not somebody in uniform? I think, that we, I think that we lose sight of that at our peril, partly because it lulls us into a force, false sense of security that if the military isn't doing it, well, therefore it must be okay, when in fact uh, people out of uniform are perfectly capable of doing you know, violent abuse of authoritarian things. So I think, I think just kind of keeping our eyes on the really important thing, which is not the name or the appearance of the institution, but the degree to which it is acting in a manner that is consistent with and subject to 
those democratic norms about transparency and accountability, as well as doing it effectively, that's the more important issue. And I do think we sometimes lose sight of that. But, but I also just wanted to go back more in keeping with that. I'm not only worried about what Trump is going to do, and I share all of Steve's uh, concerns about potentially catastrophic outcomes in November, including disputed election results, you know, Trump refusing to leave, uh, uh, you know, Trump leaving, but then attempting to sabotage a democratic administration and calling on his followers to resist in ways that are even more specific than these most recent, you know, liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia kind of crap he's been pulling. Um, and so I can see all kinds of horrifically bad outcomes that result in a very direct way from our president's contempt for the rule of law, contempt for democratic norms, and willingness to foment civil instability. Um, but, and but, I also am worried much more broadly about the impact of all of this uh, on democratic norms, not just coming from the president. I mean, and, and, and it's, it's a really tough situation, right? There, because both Democrats and Republicans are, are you know, in, we're, we're all in uncharted territory. And at the state and local level, we have seen both Democratic and Republican elected officials do things that, you know, three months ago would have been considered illegal, outrageous, and completely violative of every norm about civil liberties and rule of law, such as, just to, to name just a, a, a tiny number of examples, um, I'm not even talking about the, the, the stay-at-home orders, which are driving out the protesters in places like Michigan, but, but, but things such as uh, 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 Gina Raimondo in Rhode Island, uh, order to use the um, Rhode Island State Police and Rhode Island National Guard to stop cars with New York plates uh, and order them into self-quarantine. And then when criticized by that, uh, to say, okay, fine, we're gonna stop all cars with non-Rhode Island plates and do the same thing. Uh, I'm talking about, I think it was the governor of New Jersey was just uh, quoted as saying something, and I, I don't even remember the specific things it was in response to, but it was similar things along the lines of, we're just gonna go door to door and tell you, you know, you're not allowed out anymore. Um, and was asked, well, wait a minute, doesn't, doesn't, isn't that kind of unconstitutional? <laughs> or, you know, or what well, I can't remember, they were confronted with a rule of law question, to which the answer was, look, I just can't think about things like this. I'm just trying to keep my community safe. And I think that across the country, again, cutting across political parties, we're seeing actions where leaders at every level are essentially saying, sue me later. You know, I believe I need to do this to keep this town, this county, this state safe. And so I don't really care uh, whose rights I'm violating or what laws I'm violating. Or as we saw in, in uh, Ohio uh, with the Democratic, with the primary elections, I don't really care what a court tells me, you know, come out feel free, come after me, send the bailiffs after me, but I'm doing this anyway. And I'm, I'm both quite sympathetic particularly because in the absence, in the void created by the complete absence of any kind of remotely coherent uh, federal leadership from, from, from the president himself uh, or the rest of the administration, we have left mayors and governors totally on their own to try to figure out, well, what do I do? What, what should I do? What's, what's appropriate? What's not appropriate? Um, so, and, and, and we do have a public health crisis. So I'm, I'm actually quite sympathetic to these governors and mayors who are struggling and who are sort of thinking, I don't want to be the guy who said, well, sorry, there's some fine print here, so you're all going to die, you know, but at the same time, you know, and, and, and this does link up with, as I said, with, you know, what the White House is and isn't doing, in the absence of any leadership at the national level, uh, from the president, from respected congressional leaders, to the extent that there are any, which maybe there aren't, uh, you know, from the Supreme Court, you know, from from the justice of the Supreme Court, et cetera, saying, saying, hey, here's some guidelines, guys, you know, even in a crisis, here's some stuff that's not okay, you know, here's some stuff that's okay temporarily with the following safeguards, here's some stuff that's not okay. In the absence of that, we're getting a total rule of law free for all. And some of those actions, you know, we may judge kindly, uh, through the lens of hindsight and say, yeah, okay, you know, you screwed something up, but you sort of had to do it. And others of those we're going to judge very, very harshly, you know, that we're going to judge like, like Japanese internment camps. And, and that's what worries me as much as the, the high level fomentation of civil unrest is that level of kind of rule of law chaos at the ground level.
interesting, interesting point. Um, uh, I, I noticed you were a little casual about this, and in my head I heard, first they came for the people with New York State license plates, but I did not have a New York State license plate, so. Um, but I live in Virginia where we're all right. armed, so I yeah. said, they'll yeah. never get my, they'll get my car over my dead body. You live in Virginia where all geese are swans. Right. All geese are swans, exactly. All right, last prescriptive take here, Steve. Yeah, well, let me say two things. One, I, I, I'm uh, very sympathetic to what Rosa was saying, and it reminds us of a very important lesson. Uh, it, what makes a democracy survive is not the formal rules, but the commitment to a set of norms, so that even when the formal rules have to get violated because of an emergency, people revert back uh, to the norms afterwards. So here, I'll start with some good news, right? The, the American people actually still seem to like those norms, whether or not they will ultimately rally uh, if need be. 84% think regular elections are important. 80% support a free media. 77% think freedom of speech is absolutely essential. Uh, even 67% believe having opposition political parties is an important part of a democracy. Despite right, the fact right. Although that a third of the American people don't. No, which, think is, about that, you know. which is a little worrisome yeah, it's a little worrisome. as well. But nonetheless, there's, there is a sort of basic support for, I think, the constitutional order that we've, that we've had. And the question will be, you know, how quickly can we revert back to that uh, sense of normal or at least quasi-normal afterwards? To me, just I'll mention prescriptively one domestic thing and one international thing. Um, uh, the, to me, the great puzzle of Trump's response to this is why he has not actually had his hair on fire uh, on testing, because testing is the get out of jail free card for Donald Trump. If we actually had a systematic, well-organized uh, national mobilization to get as many people tested as rapidly as possible, that eventually provides the information that allows him to start reopening the economy in a relatively safe fashion. And he could go into November looking like, you know, a great heroic president. The problem is that he, I think, lacks the skill set to organize anything like that and has therefore had to revert back to his standard playbook, which is to blame somebody else, whether it's the World Health Organization or China or governors he doesn't like in blue states, uh, et cetera, and to sow as much division as possible and rev up his base. But again, it's, it's a puzzle. So the domestic thing is, you know, if I had a magic wand, testing, testing, more testing, and use all of the resources of the federal government to try and accelerate that process as much as possible, because that's what ultimately gets us out of this. Um, I agree with the general thrust of, of Corey's comments about globalization, but uh, the fact is we're going to see at least a partial retreat from that in the near to medium term. Um, that was already happening, of course, before the pandemic happened, and this is just going to reinforce uh, the sense that that allowing sort of short-term profits to dictate your supply chain construction, uh, you know, that's what led to things being concentrated in one country because it was cheaper to do it there than to diversify uh, things. Every country is going to want to have a few more limits. They're going to have a little bit more indigenous capacity. They're going to want to uh, have some slightly higher walls on uh, travel and migration and, and things like that. Um, we're going to see, I think, a significant retreat, not an abandonment, because David, you're absolutely right. You can't abandon international trade without impoverishing us, uh, us all. But, you know, I've said this before, I will keep repeating it. Uh, the post-COVID world is going to be somewhat less free than it was before, somewhat less open than it was before, and substantially less prosperous than it was before as a result of all of those things, at least in the near to medium term. So I started with optimism, I'll end with my usual pessimistic view. Uh, well, I'm sure that pleases Rosa. Um, Corey, you know, looks like she's ready to jump in with something else optimistic um, to, to, to counter that. We're, we're kind of at the end of our, our, our time here. Uh, listening to you, I, I would say that if, if there were a futures market, not in oil, but in policy wonk terminology, um, I would be buying a lot of supply chain futures right now. Because I think for the next six months, a year, a couple, we're going to be talking about supply chains 
of pharmaceutical products, supply chains of technology to make sure it's secure against cyber attack, uh, supply chains uh, of other things that are essential to the United States. It turns out it's not a supply chain. It's like a, it's like a supply gossamer thread of cotton candy or something. <laughs> yeah, that a doesn't- A flip and slide. Yeah, it doesn't, it, yeah, so that's nice. That's, Lock that metaphor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, if you guys have other uh, thoughts of uh, policy wonk terms that we could buy futures and please let us know. I feel like the deep state radio nerds ought to have a sweepstakes on this because this is their wheelhouse. That is, that is that and box wine, are, those are their wheelhouses. Uh, well, deep state radio nerds, You've heard it. Over the next year, what's the thing that policy people are going to be talking about? Is it that Rosa Brooks rule of law stuff? Is it the supply chain stuff? Um, I don't know. You know, Corey is always there to put in a good push for civ mill relations, you know, and, and, and there's some reason to do that as well. Uh, so go on, make your pitch. We'll create a market in policy wonk uh, futures. Um, uh, in any event. How about, how about certificates of immunity? Oh yeah. I was actually at my doctor today. She, yeah. Well, she was like, she was doing, I'm, I'm so reluctant to say that I did this, but she said, I have an antibody test, which is the best of the antibody tests. And while it's not perfect, if you want to come up, you can get one. And she said, and the reason is that at some point in the not too distant future, you may want to carry a card in your pocket that yeah. says, I have a certificate of immunity. I, I'm allowed outside because I've been proven to have the antibody. Um, so, you know, Steve makes a great case. If, if, if Juliet were here, she would point out that if for single people who want a date, right, having a certificate of immunity could be the absolutely essential. Yeah, no, that's right. And what is on Tinder without one? Yeah, no, Tinder is going to change. You know, it's going to be, do you have the antibody? It's going to be the opening line of any, of you know, any dating banter. Um, uh, in any event, uh, or I have a fever for you, but it's not COVID because I have the antibody. Uh, in any event, we can look forward to all of that. In the meantime. I'd like to thank Juliet. Uh, I would like to thank Steve. I would like to thank Rosa. I would like to thank Corey. I would like to thank all of you for joining us. For more, go to thedsrnetwork.com. Come back and listen to our show on Thursday, already looking like a great one. And throughout the next few weeks, as we did last week with Val Demings, we're going to have some special one-on-ones on, one -on with newsmakers. Uh, so look for those as well. We've got a lot coming, and uh, uh, we look forward to joining you again sometime soon. Bye-bye, everybody, and stay healthy.